Okay. Um, just also, we're going to Crimson Point next week, and uh, Jerry Paulson is there now, just uh, opening the Word. So I want to start our time with a word of prayer and pray for him as he preaches in the resurrection. Father, we do acknowledge our need for You and for Your Spirit. I, I just thank You for Your marvelous grace, the infinite grace that cleanses us deep within. Thank You for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. So why we're here today is because, O oh Lord, we know that we have been forgiven in Him freely by Your grace and it has changed everything in our lives. There's no place we'd rather be. This is where we are. This is where we want to be, O oh Lord, worshiping You under Your Word. And I pray that You would teach us today. pray that the Spirit, God, Your Spirit would come in among us, really teach us, cause these words to go deep into our hearts, not just stopping at our heads. We pray for Jerry Paulson as well. You know, so I, I spoke with him about this what he's preaching on. He's just preparing for Easter and speaking on um, uh, the widow's son who was raised from the dead, Jairus' daughter raised from the dead, Lazarus raised from the dead. And we need to believe, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that He raised from the dead and then we'll be saved what we need to believe. And so I would pray for those senior citizens there that you might, might help them and maybe perhaps some don't even know you, haven't believed in the resurrection. would pray that you would give life there. would pray that you would encourage the saints who are there living in a retirement community, how lonely it can be, and would pray that His presence among them might be an encouragement to them. And Father, may You be with us. May You be with me as I open Your Word. Um, teach us, God, Your precious truths today to help us to strengthen our souls. Thank You that Your Word does that and that it's not me who does it, but it's Your Word um, is taken in and heard. God, may You cause that to bear much fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 6. It's where we've come today in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. We've been working through just section by section. And uh, we've, we've come here to Mark chapter 6, verse 1. And um, before we dig into it, I just want to say some things about following Jesus and serving Jesus. It's not easy. Serving Jesus and following Jesus is hard. Temptations abound. Struggles go. Last week we, we talked a little bit about um, Pilgrim's Progress. Or this two weeks ago, I can't even remember now, but just Pilgrim on the straight path Christian was and all the temptations all around. It is a hard journey, this Christian life. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith and, and our forgiveness is freely offered, but, but the walk of the Christian life is hard as you make decisions every day about walking in righteousness and seeking to serve your Lord. It's hard. It's difficult. And today, we're going to come to a portion of Scripture where the disciples are shown the difficulties of walking with Jesus. The, the difficulties of ministry. And for lack of a better name, I've labeled them trials. The title of my message this morning is The Trials of Ministry. Now, as you think about ministry, though, I don't want you to think about those who, who are paid to run the church, if you will. I want you to think about every single one of your lives because everyone who's a believer and follower in Christ, a follower of Christ, is in the ministry. They are, we are all called to serve the Lord in one uh, facet or another. We're, we're called to, to minister to others. So even as, as this primarily is focusing uh, upon those going out and those ministering and, and prophets as Jesus was and those standing up heralding the truth of God, it does have deep application to all of us as we seek to minister and serve one another in our lives. I want to look at the first trial of ministry. It comes right here in chapter 6, verses 1-6. through six. I'm just calling it this. Trial of ministry is rejection at home. And you'll see how applicable this is for all of us here in a little bit. But we begin at, begin at verse 6 here. Jesus went out from there and came into His hometown. And His disciples followed Him. Once again, we see Jesus changing location as He often does in this Gospel. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus and His disciples are near the shore, near the seashore. As chapter 5, verse 21 says, they were there. Um, before they went to um, Jairus' house. We don't know where that is. We just assume that this place is probably Capernaum. That's where much of the ministry has happened so far in the, the Gospel of Mark. But now Jesus comes into His, quote-unquote, His own town. 
or his own part of the country. And Mark doesn't mention it by name, but if you piece things together in this Gospel and other Gospels, we are very certain that this is, Mark is referring to Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, but his father was, his earthly father, if you will, uh, was Joseph. He was a carpenter in Nazareth. It's probably because there was work in Nazareth, and so that's where he, he went to be a, a carpenter, about 20, 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. It's the hometown of Jesus where he lived for 30 years, and he knew this place. He knew the people in that place. Every Sabbath, Jesus and his family would go to the synagogue there to worship, and now we see Jesus sitting in the seat of the synagogue to teach where once he was taught. Verse 2, and when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogues. Now, you might naturally think that he uh, would receive a hero's welcome. Here he is coming into his own town. He's this this famous prophet. Uh, People are are often proud of those who are from their hometown. Um, The city of Dixon is pretty proud of somebody who's from that town, right? Who's from Dixon, maybe? Who? Yes. Ronald Reagan's from Dixon, right. And uh, who's from DeKalb? My hometown. You know anybody from DeKalb? Steve Brand. Okay, no. Uh, who else? Cindy Crawford's from DeKalb. I went to high school with her. And just, uh, you know, DeKalb is, is proud of that. Uh, I, I, in fact, uh, I remember one time receiving a phone call from my mother-in-law. Vaughn, I don't know if you remember this, but she was so excited on this phone call. She's like, like saying these things. Oh, look, here it is. He's on it. <laughs> I didn't even know what she said, and we, we didn't we played it again, and we're not quite sure exactly what it, and kind of just just let it go. And it was only really a full, few days later I understood what was happening. Apparently, Chesley Sullenberger, you guys remember him? Who was he? Sully? Yeah, he's he's the pilot that landed the plane in the Hudson River, Air, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, when both of the engines were knocked out by a large flock of birds. Well, Danville, California which is where Vaughn grew up, is Sully's hometown. And so this was like about maybe 10 or 15 days later, I forget, of that, uh, of that landing. They were giving him a hero's welcome, presented with a key to the town. He was named an honorary Danville police officer. He, uh, the fire department gave him with the highest award, the Medal of Valor. And my mother-in-law was so thrilled that Sully was here and, and he was on live TV. And so, hey guys, look, Sully's on TV. And we just didn't understand, but then we came to understand later. But she was giving him a, a, a hero's welcome and she wanted to share the moment with us so that we might watch it on TV and watch it and share that with her. I'm not sure the TVs out here really carried local news like that. But anyway getting a hero's welcome was taking place, you might expect Jesus to receive the same sort of welcome. After all, Jesus was a teacher endowed with much power and much wisdom. He was a healer doing miraculous things. And the people knew that. Look at the second half of verse 2. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? They, they knew of his teaching and of his miracles. They saw of his teaching that he had much wisdom and his miracles, he had much power. And they're saying like, who is he? But alas, such was not the welcome that Jesus received. Instead, most of the people in Nazareth began to scoff at him. Verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Now, these, these are insulting words. Um, the Jewish culture of the day, people identified always as the father's son. Always the father's son. Never as the mother's son. Even if, as some suppose, it might be the case, even if dad was dead and Joseph had died, you still didn't call Jesus the son of Mary. You called him the son of Joseph. Unless, of course, you wanted to insult Jesus. And you wanted to allude to the circumstances surrounding his birth. In which, you know, reputation got around that this wasn't totally a legitimate thing when Jesus was born. Because, of course, he was born of a virgin. And rumors were around and they started to say, oh, he's the son of Mary, but we're not going to identify him with Joseph because they knew something else was, was going on. And, and furthermore, just mention of his brothers and sisters intended to bring Jesus down. What's so special about this guy? Aren't his brothers here? 
And aren't his, aren't his sisters here among us? I mean, we know a little bit about James and Joseph. These were his brothers. James was prominent in the early church. Gave his blood for Christ in Acts chapter 12. Herod killed him. Um, um, Judas, uh, we know about him. He's probably Jude. Probably the one who wrote Jude. We don't know about these others. We don't know the name of the sisters. But the people in Nazareth knew these people very well. Uh, certainly, Jesus' half-brothers, the sons and daughters of um, Moses, of, of uh, Mary and Joseph. But I think they're just saying, hey, there's nothing special about this guy. He might do all these things, but he's just ordinary Joe. What is the fat? What's the fuss about this? And so, as a result, verse 3 says, they took offense at him. Jesus was not received in Nazareth like he was in Capernaum, like he was in all the other cities. Rather, he was really rejected. And this is the reality of spiritual ministry. This is the reality of spiritual life is that we are often, believers in Christ, often experience rejection at home. Just how it is. Many times, new believers experience this. They come to faith in Christ. They come home to their family only to be rejected for the newfound faith. Sometimes even faith in Christ means that you're disowned from your family. Jewish families, particularly if people come to Jesus, they you know, give a funeral sometimes. You're just done. Uh, I know that in other cultures, you know, you're converting. It's, it's you are forsaking all your ancestors and now you come to Jesus and you're, you're forsaking all that. We're going to forsake you instead. Kicked out of the house in many times. Sometimes, though, the rejection is more subtle. Sometimes the new believer's like isn't taken seriously. Oh, well, he's come to faith in Jesus. Well, he's got religion. Okay, well, it's just a stage he's going through because they remember all the stages he went through. And they say, just wait, maybe he'll turn around. They remember when he was a snotty teenager. And they remember when he wrecked the car and tried to hide those things from his father. Right? And they, they remember the time that he got involved in this other religious group. And they got time when he was totally into sports. And he was an atheist for a while. And now he's Jesus. Well, just, just give it some time and it's, it's going to pass. He'll turn around as years go by and nothing really changes, right? Bearing forth fruit, showing as a genuine disciple of Christ. Um, but then the family just thinks, well, that's just, that's just who he is. He's just a religious guy. He's just a, a good guy. And, 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 and the family just doesn't think very much. Oh, well, it might be good for you, but really it's, it's not for us and it never really catches on at home. And if that's your situation, I just say be encouraged because Jesus faced the same situation, not only here with all of Nazareth, but even we saw it in Mark chapter 3 where his mother and his brothers were, were trying to take him. Chapter 3 verse 21, his own people heard of this. They tried to take custody of him for they were saying, he has lost his senses. I think Jesus is, is crazy. We need to go get him. We need to rescue him from his people. So even among his family, among whom Jesus lived perfectly, <clears throat> there were struggles and doubts. So the dynamics of being a follower of God at home. Jesus explains this in verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his own relatives, and is in his own household. It's the nature of the kingdom of God and how it works. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's what people say. You're just so familiar with it. How can this guy be anything special? The prophet receives honor all the way around except, except at home. And all of us probably to some extent or another know what that's like. I, I know, you know, me among my brothers and sisters, um, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a, a Christian family. So all my brothers and sisters are believers in Christ. And, but I still think that there's this sense where they just see Steve. He, he's just Steve. I mean, they remember the fact that I, I wasn't potty trained until I was five years old, right? And they remember that I didn't say anything until I was three. And they remember how when I was in high school and in college, how absent-minded I was and how I just didn't, didn't do things very well. Or just kind of like my mind was off in the clouds someplace. And they just, oh, that's just Steve. Um, there's, there's that sense where my, my brothers and sisters um, don't see that, you know, but maybe someone else will lift up. But that's just the dynamics of, of spiritual ministry is how it is. Um, we saw a great example of that yesterday. A friend of ours from nearly 20 years ago stopped by our house. We haven't seen him in probably 17, 18 years. And, um, you know, he stopped by, just kind of basically was on his way through Rockford, only had an hour with us. But I remember he very much, he just expressed to us how very appreciative 
He was to us. In fact, at one point it was really sweet. He said, we're all sitting around their lunch table. We served him lunch. And uh, he and his wife and his, his mom was there too. And he said, I, I just want to tell you kids how much of an impact your mom and dad have had on my life. And, um, just, and they said, when I was a college kid, I was totally messed up. And your parents just loved me and served me. I don't know why they did, but I'm just so thankful for them. And in fact, even my dad had a big impact on his life too. And many of you know my dad wrote this book a long, long time ago when Grandpa was a little boy. And, and I was t- he asked about my parents and how they were doing. I said, here they are. And, and uh, I just gave him a, a brief update. And I said, oh, here's a book that he wrote. Maybe you'd like this. And, and he kind of put it in his hand. He, he turned to the back and saw a picture of my dad and starts tearing up in his eyes. Just the grace that my dad showed him, a sinful college student into himself. But here, 20 years later, he's gone through lots of trials. He's doing very, very well, bold in his faith. I mean, he was extremely bold, even just right there. And, and what's interesting is that his mother was along, his mother's not a believer. And very nice, very accommodating, very pleasant. I mean, we, we like her. Uh, we've met her before, whatever, 18 years ago, last time we saw our friend. But you can almost see her roll her eyes when my friend is speaking. And he spoke about how, yeah, I've messed up a lot of stuff, but Jesus is my Savior and He's, he's redeemed me and made me, made me clean. And almost as to say, well, you know, I, I like my son. Religion is good for my son, but it's, it's, not, it's not for me. It's good for him, it's not for me. And, and I'm not going to interrupt or argue or anything like that because we, we've had that before, but it's, it's just not for me. And you can almost see that he's got... No honor there, whereas he is a, a mover and shaker and, and uh, just loving Christ in many ways. But I, I do think that's a picture of uh, what a prophet is, not without honor, except in his hometown, his family. It's one of the trials of ministry, rejection at home. But here, for any of you who see that and experience that, be encouraged by this. Is it's not your sin that turns people away. It's not your faults or your failures that turn people away. It's not the fact you haven't lived a perfect life before your family that turns them away because think about this. Jesus did none of those things. He walked perfectly in all his life. He never sinned. It would be a, a bad brother or sister, I'm sure, to have to be the, the one that's always right and the one that always gets things, you know, doesn't, doesn't need to get spanked. He doesn't need to be disciplined. He's just always right to be driving. But, but they knew when they saw that and yet still they weren't believing. They still they rejected Him. And even there, you know, amongst the schools where He went, He was always on the righteous side of every argument or every fight or everything. Just were there. And, and His hometown just kind of saw Him as, as nobody, even though He never sinned. And I do believe that Jesus, even Himself, humanly speaking, marveled for that reason. Look at verse 5. And He could do no miracle here there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief and he's going around the villages teaching. And, and I think the idea here isn't that he wasn't powerful enough to do miracles there. Rather, it's the people weren't believing in him. They weren't bringing people to him to be cured. Because there were some that he healed. I mean, those that were coming to him, he was laying his hands on them. But not many people weren't the crowds. You know, when, when he was at home in Nazareth, there weren't the crowds at the door where they had to keep everybody out or, or the nobody could get in. But it was kind of like, well, open house, it's an empty house, come on in. And nobody came but a few. And Jesus really wondered at their unbelief a little bit, how can they reject me? I've been amongst them, I've known them, and they've not. But it's just one of the trials of ministry. It's the trials of spiritual life. Let's move on. Not only does the trial of ministry include rejection at home, also I'm calling it faith on the road. Verses 7 through 13. If you pick it up, last part, chapter 6, he was going around all the villages teaching. So he's going around teaching. And then he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a, a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Then they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. The disciples had been with Jesus long enough to see the ministry that He was doing. Jesus gave them power and authority. 
And they went out. In fact, even if you remember back in chapter, chapter 1, um, he said, let's go out. I, I, I've been there to preach and that's what I came for. And in fact, in chapter 3 then, when he called his disciples, he, sent, he appointed them, chapter 3, verse 14, so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Well, this is the time in which that is coming to pass. They've been with Jesus and now he's sending them out to do the same thing that he was doing. It's like he sent them out on a little missionary trip. Sending them out in pairs, the wise thing to do. They can encourage one another along the way. They can protect each other if there's danger. They can um, give credibility to each other. This isn't just a lone guy out there. I mean, the law even speaks about by two or three witnesses. Every fact is confirmed and they can encourage that. And so going out two by two. And as Jesus sent them out, here it is the key, he sent them out with little. He didn't send them out with a lot. He just sent them out with a little. No bread, no bag, no money. Only a staff, some sandals, and a single tunic. In other words, just just the clothes on your back or your staff just to walk along the way. Really with very little. And the idea here is that they're to go out and trust the Lord completely. When they came into a city, they had to trust the Lord for where to stay. When they came into a city, they didn't have any money. They said, trust the Lord to provide them with food. How different this is than when we go on a trip. Uh, Avon and I are, are planning a trip in about two weeks, two and a half weeks, we're going to leave to Nepal. You can pray for us. Most of you here know uh, about that trip and how we're going. And I trained some pastors over there. I've been there several times. Going to go again. But as we've been preparing for our, our trip, Avon, Avon's got these two suitcases in our, in our bedroom and just we're starting to pile all the stuff in there that we need. We are putting our, not clothes yet, but we're putting everything. We're starting with food and snacks and that can keep, right? Change of clothes we're going to put in there. We're going to put maybe an extra coat or extra shoes or soap or shampoo or toothbrush or an extra pillow or a map or schedules, instructions, maybe some books to read we're going to put in there, gifts when we arrive in Nepal. On top of that, we're going to bring some money with us bring some cash with us just to be able to use. And on top of that, we'll, we'll bring our credit cards as well. If we really need to spend money on something, at least we'll have some electronic access to funds so we can get anything that we might forget or need to use. But when Jesus sent His disciples out, it's much different. He said, just go with your clothes. Just go right where you are. Just how you guys are all dressed today. Just get up and go. Go out in pairs and go out on your, your trip. I believe it's intentional Jesus intentionally put the disciples in a position of dependence. That's what he was trying to do. Before I said, they had faith on the road. Put them on the road. Let them trust the Lord with faith. And it is interesting, none of them died on the trip. They all came back. None of them went hungry during that trip. Maybe someone came back a little smaller, a little lighter, I don't know. But I think God provided everything they needed. My guess is they came back heavier because God provided everything that they needed for them. And it's not that everything went well. Jesus even told His disciples when things don't go well. Verse 11, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the, the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Jesus gave His disciples instructions for what they should do when they are rejected, because they probably would be rejected. The Jews, when they left Gentile land to come back into their own home, they would often shake off their legs. So they symbolically say, that land there is defiled, now I'm going on, on righteous ground. Because the Gentiles have defiled that ground. And so even though as they went to the Jewish people, if they rejected them, they were supposed to go out and, and shake their feet, shake their legs, to get all that dust off of there. Anticipating the rejection that would come and clearly... They, they probably faced rejection because, it says in verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. And repentance is a difficult message. Repentance is a message that people don't want to hear. People want to live their own way. But when you say, living your own way, is, you're going to incur the wrath of God, you need to turn from your way and you need to seek Jesus and seek Him and seek the forgiveness that He provides and, and turn from your sinful ways and turn to your righteous ways. People don't like that. They want to live in their sin. They want to carry after their sin rather than following the ways of God. And I would suspect that they got some, some heat from that. They got some resistance. But we preach repentance. 
And that's what we do. When you speak with people, when you talk with people, you call them to turn. Turn from their own ways and turn to the ways of God. And you may be rejected too. But it's always good to, to be out there and, and, and to push and to encourage people to repent and turn from that. But I think that even if things didn't go well, God provided in everything. Now, I need to say this, that it's not to say that we ought to do as the disciples did. Because in fact, even there's this interesting passage in Luke 22 where Jesus says, don't do it like you did it before. Listen, Luke 22:35. Jesus said, when I sent you out without money and without belt and without bag, without sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. And he said, but now, whoever has a money belt, take it along. Likewise, a bag, whoever has no sword, sell his coat and buy one. In other words, when you go on a missions trip today, Go prepared. Jesus was doing that just to test them, to put them out in faith. Trust that the Lord will fully supply your needs before the trip and during the trip. He changed things even for the disciples. But it's not to say the principle doesn't apply. In fact, the principle is exactly the same even for us. So there's, there's faith on the road. There's a trial for those who minister to others and those who serve others. Right? Whenever we go out, we need faith. Even Yvonne and I think about going to Nepal. We, we need faith in going to Nepal. Um, lots of things going to happen. Um, in fact, even we were talking about dinner the other night. There's just things that are going to happen. I, I just know it is, and we just kind of trust the Lord. We do some preparation, but it's, it's going to work out. But there are times when we go out and we're going to build up our faith. And I think uh, Alyssa Krauss, many of you know that Alyssa just got back from a mission trip to Berlin, Germany. And uh, she wrote a report of her times her time there, and it was in the Weekly Word. I'm not sure how many of you... How many of you read Alyssa's report? Good. A lot of you. Some of you probably didn't. But I was greatly encouraged by her report. I want to read that. But I want, as I read it, I want you to listen to this whole dynamic of going on the road with faith. We need faith on the road. Here's what Alyssa said. I'm just going to pull out just a couple paragraphs. Please be praying for the 93 students who heard the Gospel, some for the very first time, when I asked Harumi a young Brazilian woman studying at the Technical College, who Jesus was, she responded saying, Jesus? Who's that? The reality of the nations is that there are so many people who have grown up not hearing about or not having a correct view of who Christ is or what He did. I'm blessed to have been given the opportunity to serve God this past week and be one of the people to share Christ with someone for the first time. That's got to be a sweet thing, huh, Alyssa? Uh, It's very sweet. We get people who haven't learned of Jesus, haven't heard of Jesus, you get to share with them. I am thankful that the Lord chose to take me out of my comfort zone in the States to share my faith. It's much more difficult to talk to someone about the Lord when everything around them and everything they've learned points to them away from there even being the existence of a God. A man on staff with crew, Campus Crusade, in Berlin, appropriately called Europe the prodigal son of the world, a place once revived and following God is now a hub for spiritual emptiness. Very true. Another way I was challenged in my faith while in Berlin, Berlin was simply to just grow in the way I need to trust my Heavenly Father to be in control and provide for all of my needs. Just like the disciples, right? I felt doubt creeping in during conversations like, there's no way He'll change or they aren't really listening to you or can you even communicate well enough to them? Well, the Holy Spirit really did take over conversations and overwhelm my heart with confidence in Him. Being a part of CRU during these last few years, I've been able to witness to women coming to Christ by the power of the Spirit through our conversations. But this week I experienced Him completely taking our conversations the way He wanted to, putting words and Scripture in my mouth that I did not prepare even know how to say beforehand. I was asked for more faith too when uh, I didn't see anyone meet Jesus for the first time, but instead I have to trust that the seeds that were planted and the Lord will water them and cause them to grow. Other areas I felt challenged in my faith were growing in boldness to ask spiritual questions, confidence in discerning the Lord's will and humbling my heart to desire confessing sin continually and specifically. It was also wonderful to learn the history of Berlin to see God's hands in German's history. On a free day Friday, a group of students went to Sachsenhausen. Is that close enough? All right, thanks. A concentration camp just outside of Berlin. Being in the concentration camp 
and seeing the evil that Satan was behind during the 1930s and 1940s was sobering and heart-wrenching, but ultimately seeing how the Lord has and is redeeming His people and that His plan is to love Him and trust Him more. Did you catch some? Let me just read a few sentences again that Alyssa wrote. I'm thankful the Lord chose to take me out of my comfort zones in the States to share my faith. Out of the comfort zone where I need to trust. Another way I was challenged in my faith. Other areas I felt challenged in my faith. His plan is to love Him and trust Him more. Just praying God would help me. I mean, that, that, that pervades this whole letter. And that is what your trip was about in many ways. Now, it was to share the Gospel with people in Berlin. I mean, that is certainly true. And in Germany... But there's something else going on with anybody who goes out. It, it stirs within us a heart that says, God, I just need to trust You. I just need to believe in You. God, You are trustworthy in all these things. It's one of the trials of ministry. It's faith on the road. Well, i got another thing for you. You might just think, um, you know, do I need to go to Berlin to do something like this? And I just say, no, you don't need to go to Berlin to make a, a similar trip. Uh, Tom Wietek. Uh, he's not here today. No, that's okay. I'm just trying to promo for him. He's, he's organized like uh, we did last year, uh, an outreach to uh, Major League Baseball, to the Sox and to the Cubs home openers. That's uh, this April 5th, Thursday, and Friday, April 13th. And the idea is to, to hand out tracks like business cards just for two hours before the game. I mean, opening day, everybody's filled with excitement, right? And for Cubs fans, it just goes downhill from there. But at least everybody... <laughs> At least everybody is there and excited about it during, during the beginning. And so, he's got these business cards that uh, he printed up and kind of threw some friends. And, and this one is, uh, is about the Chicago Cubs. And it's got some, some trivia on the front, and then it's got a gospel presentation on the back. And uh, so I was there with him last time. We just kind of hand them out to people. And you, and you try to just get them in their hands, and sometimes they say, oh, what's this? And I say, well... I say it's um, some, some trivia, Cubs trivia on the front and it's got uh, some stuff about God on the back. I'm like, oh, cool. Sometimes I say, whoop, and they, they throw it away or whatever. Um, but like, like, here's some trivia on the, on the front. See how good your Cubs trivia is. Who was the first Cub to hit 50-plus home runs in a season? Conrad. you like, do you know? No way, Ethan. Uh, not the first one. Yes, Carl. No, that's a good guess, though. No, no. I got to check, make sure I'm right. Yeah, I am. Hack Wilson. That's like standard Cubs trivia, by the way. I, I don't know. That's just kind of a, a question that, that goes around. How about this one? White Sox trivia. I'll give you a, uh, one question from the White Sox card. In 1973, which pitcher started both games of a doubleheader? Yeah. Wilbur Wood did, yes. Good job. Let's see if there's other here. We can leave it at that. One, one last one. In 1993, who became the first Sox player to win back-to-back MVP awards? 1993. Frank Thomas. Frank Thomas. Good job. So, here, here's what it is. If you say, you know what, I want to stretch my faith. I want to go, you know what, uh, Thursday, April 5th, Friday, April 13th, why don't you come with us? Why don't you join us? It's really easy. I mean, you just got to go. But you know what? There is something where my heart starts kind of pounding. Like, how are they going to accept this? I mean, because you set your stake in the ground and say, I am a Jesus freak. And I'm going to pass out these things. And I'm going to do that. But if you want to come and join, join us for that. I know for men, a lot of times it's during work. Maybe consider quitting a day or stepping off or taking a vacation day to do this. To step. You don't have to go to Berlin. You can go to Chicago. You can go to Comiskey Park or Wrigley Field. And you can do that via wonderful stretching times. Kids, you can do that too. I mean, kids. Um, Tom, you, Tom always takes his kids. Ephraim and uh, Asher. I think both of you guys went. Uh, Hadassah, did you go with us? I mean, I'm sorry, Eliana, did you go with us ever? Did you? I can't, okay, I can't remember. You went. The kids, people will receive things from kids sometimes as well. So kids, you kind of get out there. If you want to do that, it's really easy just kind of passing down. But it's going to stretch you in your faith, which is... Much of the idea. I mean, we can pray for God's Word as it goes forth. Maybe someone will be converted that we only know about in eternity. Um, but a lot of it is just saying, you know what, I'm just going to seek to do this and would challenge you to do what Jesus did with His disciples. He stretched them as they went out.
That's a trial of ministry. It's maybe not a trial, but maybe it's a hardship of ministry, but maybe it's, it's a good thing. Alyssa, I think you've come back blessed, right? Come back encouraged and challenged. I know that uh, whenever I've done that, you kind of feel encouraged on the way back. Alright, trials of ministry. Rejection at home, faith on the road. Uh, thirdly, death for some. Death for some. Verses 14 through 29. Beginning of verse 14, we have a flashback to the circumstances surrounding the death of John the Baptist. Some have said this is the first Passion account in the Gospel of Mark, and it is. The second Passion account, is, of course, is that with Jesus. One verse, in the, I'm sorry, um, Mark has already hinted at the, uh, uh, the Passion, the suffering of John the Baptist. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. But that was when John had been taken into custody. Just a little hint about John being in prison. But now we get the whole story from verses 14 through 29. And, and here's something interesting about this. It's important to note that this story really could go anywhere in Mark's gospel. It is self-contained. It's kind of like, oh, by the way, let me tell you about John the Baptist. And then it comes back. In fact, even, even it is here, a little bit like we saw last week. Remember last week we saw Jairus' daughter and then interrupted with the, uh, the hemorrhaging woman and then the finishing Jairus' daughter. Same thing here. Jesus sends his disciples out and then we're interrupted by uh, John the Baptist talking about it. And then we, we get to the end. Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. It would have been easy, 14 to 29, it just flows right there, but it's kind of inserted in there. And like Mark does often, it kind of inserts these stories all over the place. And so the, the question is this, is it why did Mark place it here? If it could have been placed anywhere. Well, why not tell the story back in chapter 1 when John was taken into custody? Oh yeah, and here's what happened to John. Well, we don't, we don't know, but I think it has to do with the overall theme in this section of Mark. Because I think he's trying to show us the hardship of ministry. They're going to reject you at home, on, on the road, you need to trust God. And even now, think about the message of John the Baptist. It might cost you your life. That's what he says. So it fits right there into the theme of the hardship of ministry. Verse 14, let's just pick it up there. And King Herod heard of it. Now you say, heard of what? Well, it might refer to the, the ministry of the disciples. So they went out performing many miracles or... It may refer to the ministry of Jesus, which I tend to think so because the verses following 14b through 16 all talk about Jesus and, and who He is and who, who this might be. So anyway, when Herod heard of it, heard, heard something about Jesus and the ministry of His disciples going on, for His name had become well known, as the name of Jesus become well known, and the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers at work in Him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he's a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. He kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. And really, we see Herod out of his mind. I mean, Herod heard of these miraculous things taking place. Demons being cast out. Sick people being made well. People crying to the Lord. Turning from their sin and trusting in, in God. And because of the similarity with the ministry of, of John the Baptist, some are saying, hey, is John risen from the dead? Some were, thought it was Elijah. Some thought some other prophet. And, and, and regardless, John, Herod was zoomed in on this one thing. He said, no, nope, surely this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Convinced of that. I think Herod's out of his mind. I think somehow he's crazy. It's really not a rational thought. The resurrection is not entirely rational. I mean, think about it. If we hear about some wicked deeds taking place in the Middle East, how many of us say, oh, Saddam Hussein is risen from the dead and he's doing these wicked things. Or I'm going to say, oh, Osama bin Laden, they really didn't get him and he's still alive and well, fostering Al-Qaeda and funding it. We don't, we don't think that way. And, and so likewise here, righteous things going on, oh, that must have been John the Baptist who I killed. Well, I think that second part of that statement really is the key to it all. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. What we see here is a troubled conscience. A troubled conscience doesn't speak doesn't think rationally. You can see that. Maybe people involved in sin, engaged in sin, you don't think straight when you're engaged in sin. That's just how, how we work. 
It's how our spirits, how, how God makes us. Sin is so corrupting, it penetrates deep within us that we can't think rightly. And that's what he is saying. John, whom I beheaded, has, has risen. And then we read about how John was beheaded, starting in verse 17, for Herod himself, explaining, for because Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So you say, why was John in prison? What was the issue? Why was John in prison? Anybody? Why was John in prison? Why was he in prison? What did you say? Yeah, Virginia? Yeah. Your marriage is wrong. Your marriage is wrong. He's making a stand for marriage and divorce. Think it's applicable? Think the Bible's applicable to us today? All that's happening with marriage today? Make a stand on that. Marriage you have is not lawful. Now, we don't know the details. We can imagine it, right? Herod's first wife is a daughter of an Arabian king, according to Josephus. We we know that. Somehow, um, Herod instead was attracted to Herodias his brother Philip's wife. And my guess is they probably had an affair. They were guilty of adultery. And uh, as often as the case, when adultery happens, a divorce happens over here, a divorce happens over here, and then you get married. You live happily ever after. The story has, surely, if we know everything, it's filled with lust and passion, sin all over it. But rather than sweeping it under the carpet, what does John the Baptist do? He makes it an issue. And he makes it an issue. And he makes an issue. Your marriage is wrong, King Herod. Your marriage is wrong. And was that the PC thing to do? It was not the politically correct thing to do. He was thrown into prison. He was kept. Um, but he continued to preach against this marital union, saying it wasn't lawful. And Herodias, of course, hated John the Baptist for it. He wasn't content to let it go. And so we read here in verse 19... Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but he could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John. Even when he was alive, he was afraid of him, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed and he used to enjoy listening to him. Now, how how typical this is, maybe, when you get a passionate preacher, many unbelievers will go and hear a passionate preacher preach. The most famous case probably is Benjamin Franklin. Loved to hear George Whitfield preach. Didn't believe a thing he said, but loved to hear him preach because he was passionate and he was flowering. His oratory was there and uh, liked it. So Herod also, he, he would enjoy listening to him. Similar to uh, sometimes that, that Paul was in prison. He would speak, I think it was to Agrippa, that he would bring in and often speak to them and then speak to them as self-control. Felix, self-control, righteousness and the judgment and they get scared. Oh, you know, you go away. And then they come back. And there's something about this guy. There's something about conviction that people and crowds will love to listen to that even if they don't believe. And I just say that's a warning then as well to people who go hear pastors preach because they like the preaching rather than loving the Savior the preachers preach. And I fear many love the preaching but don't believe it just like Herod. It's a warning. Check your hearts. Do you, do you believe and love Christ? Are these things treasuresome to you? Do you love them? Well, here we got Herodias, not so happy with the situation. She wants to get out of it any way she can. I'm sure she's scheming. She's thinking about it. And Herodias herself knew, as one commentator said, the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. And that's exactly what happened. Their marriage certificate is written on the back of the death warrants of John the Baptist. The story tells itself, I'll just read it, verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Not probably the, the most righteous dance here, Right? State Street Station is probably close to what was happening here. It's very sinful. But Herod was pleased by these things. Um, 
She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whoever, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you half. Up to half of my kingdom. Now, Herod really wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. He didn't have half a kingdom to give. But he liked being a king. And so he lifted himself up. He, this is a, a vain promise. But what it was, says, You please me so much, I will give you anything. What do you want? Verse 24, And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. So immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You see these immediately at once words here again. It's just a, I want it done. I want his head on a platter now. And the king, although the king was very sorry, verse 26, and because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, right? Forget just confessing it was a bad oath to make in the beginning. He, because of his oath, he's unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and it laid in a tomb. It's a gruesome scene. The Bible is very gruesome. It's gruesome here. It's the reality, the ugliness of sin is that Herod made this oath, went ahead, ordered his execution. And John's life was ended and such was the trial of John's life. He took a stand for righteousness and paid with his life. John Calvin said it well. He said this, We behold in John an illustrious example of that moral courage which all pious teachers ought to possess. Not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful as often may be found necessary. For he with whom there is an acceptance of persons does not honestly serve God. Just talk there about the moral courage that John the Baptist had that we all need to stand for righteousness and to suffer for it. You and I, we may not pay with our lives. In fact, I'd be surprised if any one of us paid with our lives for following Christ. But, we are called to make moral stands in our life. And as we do, we won't be popular. It may cost us a promotion. It may cost us relationship. It may cost us our job. It may cost us financially. When you make a righteous stand, it may cost you death. Probably not here in America. Though in other lands it does. The number of Christians being martyred for their faith in Christ today are enormous. But it may mean that people slander us. It may mean that people accuse us of being unloving, unkind. People may say all sorts of evil against us. But in the end, I guess I ask this question, who are we seeking to please anyway? Are we seeking to please people? Or are we seeking to please God? If we seek the approval of men, we're not seeking the approval of God. John the Baptist was seeking the approval of God and paid for it. I have a pastor friend who's in the midst of a great trial right now. Prayed with him, I've, um, emailed back and forth with him a little bit, and uh, here's here's the deal. One of the widows in the church is spreading slander, speaking against him and his fellow leader of the church. In fact, one business meeting came up, and she just railed against the pastor. All these things, all these lies, and it's just out and wrong. And uh, she's been confronted individually. The the leaders have come and confronted her and talked to her about things. She's still been unrepentant. Uh, she's been identified and told of the church, according to Matthew chapter 18. It's just a, you know, slanderous and just taking her <clears throat> slander to Facebook and just really trying to rip this church apart because the pastor was making a stand on marriage. And she did not like it because it affected her children. And so that's the kind of thing about how unloving and how cruel this is and why not this and da 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 and going back and forth and and through all this, you know, confronted individually several, told the church she's still unrepentant, continues to love her sin more than the cross to which Jesus died, continues to be rebellious and is attacking and disrupting and destroying the church which Jesus purchased with his own blood. It's come to such a head that a restraining order has been placed on her this morning, today. Because she said, oh, what are you going to do to me if I walk in? I mean, they're not going to take her and take her out, but Matthew 18, it said, treat her as an outsider. She's no longer welcome at the church anymore because of the the trials of what she has done. And they're not going to do it, but they have called the police and said she is not welcome here on this property anymore. I don't know what's going to happen. Stay tuned, I guess. Um, 
anxious to see what happens. My message is keep going, keep going right. You know you're fighting the right battle. You're on the right side. Can this be popular? Think about it. Here's a widow. Maybe in her 70s, maybe in her 80s. Been at a church for 70, 80 years. Probably had her way with other pastors who cowered. This pastor isn't cowering. And you need to call the police to help against an 80-year-old widow in your church. That's, that's just not popular. It's the price of ministry. It'd be hard. Suffering, persecution, slander. It may mean death for some. It may mean trials like that. It's a trial not only hurts, it's a trial for the whole church body as well. I think that's maybe a, a parallel when you go through a church discipline situation. Well, my last trial of ministry, and then we'll celebrate the supper here. Supper, rejection at home, faith in the road, death for some, and finally rest for all. Now, this really isn't a trial, okay? I, I didn't know how exactly to, to word this, but it's we need rest, okay? Weariness for all, maybe fatigue for all. You know what? There it is, fatigue for all. That's, that's what it is. In verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus. They reported to Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. i just say this is that ministry is exhausting. Bearing others' burdens is hard. And fatigue sets in. Those engaged in ministry need rest. And that's what Jesus sees with His disciples. They, he saw that. He discerned that. He said, oh so tenderly, come away and by yourselves to a secluded place and rest. I remember several times in my life in my married life, where I was completely exhausted due to ministry to others. <laughs> These have been hard marriage times in my life, by the way. Um, not here in Rockford. I mean, it is a different perspective when you all support me financially to be freed up to do that. I've not experienced that. But I, I did experience it in DeKalb before I was in full-time ministry. And I can relate to all of you. You know, you're not in full-time ministry. You've got jobs. You've got responsibilities and things are, bu- are building. I remember having overwhelming responsibilities at Kishwaukee Bible Church. I was an elder there. I was leading worship each week. I was teaching a flock group. I was preaching on occasion. I was doing lots of things all while working full-time and um, ministering to people. And I remember on several occasions it reached a crisis point. Remember? Sort of. I remember... Maybe it's good that I remember. Maybe it's good that you don't remember. But I just remember the fatigue set in. I'm just like worn out, just tired. And so here's, here's what it has made. It's, it's made me sensitive to those who serve in the church, especially those who give themselves completely to the work. Because I've been there. And I understand when people can't go on and people have to rest. Totally totally understand that. Now, maybe that the example for some is different. Maybe... And this, I would say, is the American church. The problem is, isn't that you're so busy and consumed you need rest. The problem for most people is that they're so engaged in their own life that the ministry of the church, there's no time for that. Rather than being so engaged in the work that it's so consuming. Resting all the time. And that's, that's not right either. But a trial of the ministry, when you're really devoted to, to serving others, you'll find that, that it's fatiguing. It's hard. It's rewarding and it's, it's, it's profitable, it's delightful, but it's, it's hard to pour yourself out to people and to help them and to serve them. But the good news is this, that Jesus knows. God knows. I mean, look at the kindness here. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. I mean, it's so busy, they didn't have time to come and eat. And Jesus says here, why don't you come away and just rest with us. I know my favorite times in life probably are when you've got people you're ministering to and ministering with when you can just get away and just enjoy them. I know we had a leadership lunch last Sunday. Um, 
just the elders and the deacons. Um, the Browns enjoyed, joined us with that. So they're leading worship and Tina does a bunch of administrative things for me. And I just love that time. We are just with one another, enjoying one another's company, playing bocce ball. My team won 21 to 20. It was really great, great time. But just that, to know that you're working hard and you're laboring and then when you come away to a time of rest, that's like one of the most exhilarating, um, nice times. There's no pretension. You're just going to be there and enjoy one another. It was a great time. Thank you, guys. Wives, children, gays, fun. Jesus knows, and He pulls us away. He knows when we need rest. I just want to take that rest theme even into the Lord's Supper as we celebrate here. Think about the Gospel. The Gospel says this, is that you can, you can try and work and try to climb the Ten Commandments and try to, try to climb a righteous standard before God, but you're never going to get there. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because there is a rest, even amongst our labor, even amongst the hardship, even as we go labor on, spending and being spent. It's a joy to do the Master's will. It is the way that He went, and His servants will follow it as well. And and, and there's this labor, but there is also this, this rest that is in Jesus that we need to strive for, that we need to reach for. In Hebrews we went through that book. When we hit chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 4, it just spoke about we who have believed enter that rest. Right? You believe in Jesus, you rest from your works. You don't have to work and labor to earn anything for God. Why do we work? Why do we labor? Why do we minister to each other? Why do we work to the point of fatigue in ministering to others? Because God has redeemed us. And we long others to know of the rest that there is in Jesus. So we don't have to work. We, we, we work and labor because He has labored for us. And we just want to serve Him in every way. And therefore, it says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. We need to be diligent about entering the rest. We need to constantly remind ourselves the rest is in Jesus. And if you're so frazzled and so wearied and bags underneath your eyes, you have no energy to minister and labor on, just rest for a while and wait and go away. That's why God has designed us, right? We, we take a day in seven. He says rest on the Sabbath day. There's also reasons for longer rests as well. But the ultimate rest that we have is in Jesus and that's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. We, just, we take bread and we take a cup, we do the fruit of the vine, and we eat it and we drink it as a remembrance to the, the crucifixion of Christ. Not that the bread and the cup saves us in any way, but just a, a constant reminder because we need to be diligent to rest. And this is for all those who've placed their faith in Jesus. This is for all those who've, who stake their claim and says, yes, I am a follower of Christ. This is where I am. I am trusting in Him. And if that's not where you are today, I'd encourage you to repent from your sins and turn and follow Christ. And if you're not believing and trusting in Christ, as the bread comes by and as the cup comes by, just let it pass. That'd be just fine. Or if there's some issue in your life where you just just say, God, I'm not following you, not trusting you. I just encourage you to say, realize that it's the cross of Christ that forgives. And so go to the cross and seek forgiveness and seek His favor. And then celebrate the supper with us. We're going to celebrate the rest that Jesus gives us. So let me pray. And then we'll do that. Lord, I thank You for these trials that come into our life which do nothing but strengthen us. As we're rejected at home, we are strengthened in our faith to examine ourselves where we are and what we do. As we go on the road, I thank You, O Lord, that You stretch us. And as we face persecution, I thank You, Lord, that You are with us and that You give us the rest, God, that we need. I pray, O oh Lord, that as all of us are really in the ministry I'm talking about today, that we would, would find our sufficiency in all ways in You. And I pray, O oh Lord, as we spend these next moments together, ten minutes, thinking and reflecting upon the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I pray that He would be our delight and our joy. I pray as we search and examine our hearts, we might examine them rightly, seeking You and Your glory not seeking division, seeking helpful, useful words that build up, not 
rotten words that tear down. Seeking to so know You and Your happiness and Your joy that we can do no other but burst forth in song and praise and thanks to You. So be with us, O Lord, at this time as we just do what You've commanded us to do. To take it and eat it and to take it and to drink it. Thank You for Jesus who was crucified on the cross for our sins. I pray we'd realize that He has taken all our transgressions away from us. It's not some, not half, and we need to take away half. It's all. God, what good news that is. And so be among us and stir our souls with fresh delights and affections for You this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.